Uh, what we're going to do today in four segments is look at three different belief systems, and then we're also going to look at what the Bible has to tell us uh, about same-sex attraction. So this morning in the two segments before lunch, we're going to look at Mormonism, then we're going to look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then after lunch, we'll spend some time looking at Islam, and then we'll wrap up with a look at same-sex attraction. And I will try to um, stop with 10 minutes or so uh, to give you some time for questions and comments at the end of each of our breaks. I want to repeat one thing I said last night, and that is that my intention uh, is not to belittle uh, or to um, defame or demean uh, anybody who is a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Muslim, or anybody who s struggles with same-sex attraction, uh, that every person is a being of eternal value to God, created in his image, someone for whom Christ died, and uh, people who are seeking the truth and believe they have found the truth, nevertheless are deceived in one way or another. So we want to declare the truth, but we want to declare the truth in love. So that will be our effort today. Before we start with the first segment on Mormonism, I want to share a passage of scripture with you, and it's from the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, near the end of the chapter, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he has words of encouragement for them. He breaks their heart by saying he knows they're not going to see him again. Uh, but before he departs, he has not only words of encouragement, but a word of exhortation for them. And in Acts 20, starting at verse 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. Paul here issues this warning to the leaders of the church at Ephesus that after his departure, there would be false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, who would worm their way into the church and would deceive uh, church people and lead them astray, that they would savage the flock rather than feed the flock. And uh, Paul put them on notice about that. Uh, that has particular application for us this morning when we look at Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because not only is Mormonism and the Watchtower um, two American originals, these are two belief systems that were 
born in America. Um, uh, but in addition to that, they both claim to be organizations that are true, restored Christianity. That after the death of the apostles, the Christian church ran off the rails, and that their organizations, whether it's the LDS Church or the Watchtower, are the only true and right representations of biblical historic Christianity. Nevertheless, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are counterfeit forms of Christianity. And those who lead those organizations are like the savage wolves that Paul warned about who've come into the church and drawn many astray. Uh, I have read that uh, some, of, uh, some of the greatest number of new additions to the LDS church come out of evangelical Christianity. In other words, as Mormonism portrays itself as just another Christian denomination, we're just like you, uh, many people buy into that deception and go that way and find, in fact, that they've embraced a false Jesus and a false spirit and a false gospel, as Paul warns about in 2 Corinthians 11, 4. So we're going to look at both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses this morning, and we're going to start with Mormonism. And a little later this morning, just in case there are some others who may come in later, um, I'm going to give you some recommendations on six or eight books if you uh, want to go a little bit deeper in looking at Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam. Uh, there are a lot of great resources out there, and... Uh, uh, but I found uh, a couple for each of these organizations that I think um, are very, very well done, very easy to understand, and address most of the questions that we would have about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Islam. All right, so let's start with uh, a little bit of a brief history uh, about Mormonism. Um, the official story, uh, which you can read, uh, on the Mormon website um, or in the introduction to some of their books like the Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, is that in 1820, a 14-year-old gentleman by the name of Joseph Smith was caught up in the Protestant revivalism that swept through New England. And he went out into the woods one day to seek the will of God. And he was beseeching God, which of the Christian denomination should I join? Should I be a Baptist? Do they have it right? Should I be a Presbyterian? Do they have it right? Should I be a Methodist? Do they have it right? Should I be a Congregationalist? Do they have it right? Lord, just show me which of the Christian denominations has it all together. Which one should I join? And then, as the story goes, there was a bright light, and God the Father and Jesus Christ both appeared to Joseph Smith. And they told young Joseph Smith that he should not join any of those denominations. Uh, that they were all, quote, wrong and corrupt, and that since the death of the apostles, the true Christian church 
has run off into complete apostasy. No one claiming to be a Christian and nothing claiming to be true historic biblical Christianity was in fact what they claimed. All of the Christian church, all of Christianity was in full apostasy. Well, that experience troubled young Joseph, um, but three years later, in 1823, the angel Moroni, if you've ever seen a Mormon temple or if you've ever been to Salt Lake City there, you'll notice that on top of the spires of a lot of the Mormon temples is an angel blowing a trumpet. That's the angel Moroni. So this angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith. He was 17 years old by now, and he told him about a book that was written on golden plates that gave an account of the former inhabitants of the North American continent, and it contained what was known as the fullness of the everlasting gospel as delivered by Jesus, who after his resurrection appeared in North America. He also said there are two stones. These two stones are called the Urim and the Thummim. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, those are stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament that were used to discern the will of God. Uh, but they had the Urim and the Thummim with these golden plates. Well, finally, in 1827, seven years after the initial visitation by Heavenly Father and by Jesus Christ, Joseph Smith receives from Moroni these golden plates uh, and he uses the Urim and the Thummim to translate them um, from what he claimed was reformed Egyptian uh, into English. And that was then published in 1830 and known as the Book of Mormon, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. I've got a copy of the Book of Mormon here. If you want to come look at it on the break, you're welcome uh, to do that. I also have a copy of the other standard works, Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. The most helpful one to me is Doctrine and Covenants because that's a list of about 130 specific revelations that Joseph Smith and other Mormon leaders claim to have received directly from God. And that's where we get the idea of exaltation, man becoming God, of the three different types of heaven um, and things like that. You don't find much of that in the Book of Mormon or even in Pearl of Great Price. So Doctrine and Covenants really is uh, a treasure trove of discerning what the Mormon church believes and practices. Well, so he established, after publishing the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith established what he called the Church of Christ. Now that should not be confused with the Churches of Christ that we know about today. There's no connection whatsoever between them. And uh, of course he began in, in New York uh, and then he began to move westward. He established a stronghold in Ohio and then he came to Missouri. Uh, if you've been in and around Independence, Missouri, um, you'll notice there are a lot of uh, Mormon markers there. In fact, I had a pastor uh, who took me out to an area, I can't quite pronounce the name of it, 
um, uh, Adam, Adam Andi or something like that, but apparently it's the original Garden of Eden, which exists outside Independence. And they took us there, and it, there's not a lot of markings. It's open to the public, uh, but you pretty much have to have a private tour to find out the significance of it. But I noticed there on the crest of a hill uh, that there's a little square stone, um, and there's no markings on it whatsoever. But evidently, this is the spot um, from which uh, Christ uh, ascended into heaven and where he will return one day. And then if you go through a wooded area and down a hill, there is this very large rock, and apparently that is the burial site for Adam and his family. So very, very interesting. Missouri has a rich uh, stake in Mormon history. Uh, there's also a rather uh, negative part to that, at least from a Mormon point of view, that in that part of Missouri, there was a battle that took place in the 1830s between Mormon settlers and others in the area, and it was such a nasty uh, military conflict that the governor of Missouri ordered the Mormons to leave the state of Missouri. And if they didn't leave, they were to be exterminated. So in 1838, uh, Joseph Smith led his Mormon followers out of western Missouri across the state, and they settled just on the other side of the Mississippi River in a uh, community known as Nauvoo, Nauvoo, Illinois. And they established a thriving community there. In 1835, uh, Joseph Smith released Doctrine and Covenants, again, a record of uh, revelations given primarily to him, and that became part of the canon of LDS scriptures. And then in 1838, uh, after settling in Nauvoo, um, Smith was jailed in Carthage, Illinois. Uh, he uh, and his followers were upset by uh, what a local newspaper called the Expositor wrote about Joseph Smith, about his beliefs, and about his followers. So he let a crew to go in and trash the offices of the Expositor. So Joseph Smith was put in jail, and an angry mob of about 200 people came and stormed the jail. And there was a shootout. And someone had smuggled a six-shooter to Joseph Smith, and he managed to kill two of the invaders before he himself succumbed to bullet wounds. So he died in jail in Carthage, Illinois, in 1838. Well, his uh, followers mostly followed Brigham Young, and they went out west to Utah. Uh, but Joseph Smith's first wife, he had multiple wives, but his first wife, Emma, did not follow Young, and neither did her family or several other followers. Uh, they continued um, the beliefs and practices of Joseph Smith, and they traveled in another direction, and today they're what's known as the Community of Christ. They used to be known as the Reformed LDS Church with their headquarters in Independence, Missouri. They've changed their name. They're now called the Community of Christ. All right, well, let's go to the next slide. And today, 
the LDS Church is the most populous and the most successful form of counterfeit Christianity in the world. There are nearly 16 million members. They are active in 189 countries and they have temples. They have 155 temples. Uh, and this comes from, from their own <coughs> publications, the most recent that I could find. Okay, next slide, please. Joseph Smith, his primary claim was that the LDS Church is restored true Christianity. Remember in his initial vision in 1820, God the Father and Jesus Christ told him that all of Christianity was in full apostasy. None of it could be trusted to be true historic biblical Christianity. And therefore, Joseph Smith's primary claim was that God anointed him to reestablish true Christianity. So the one true church, and Mormons still believe this today, although they don't go out and brag about it, but their belief is that they are the one true church and salvation can only be found through the LDS church. All right, the next slide. There are four standard works. You and I believe that the Bible is the word of God. It is inspired, it is inerrant, infallible, it is sufficient, it is authoritative. Our beliefs and practices come from the Bible. Uh, well, Mormons say we don't really have a problem with that, but uh, we believe the King James Version of the scriptures are inspired insofar as they are translated correctly. So in other words, they believe that the Bible has been corrupted by non-Mormons who profess to be Christians. Uh, therefore, they have a translation called the Joseph Smith translation. And you can, you can look it up online and read it. It's essentially the King James with a lot of margin notes uh, that Joseph Smith uh, added into that. Uh, but they will still use the King James, and in fact, in many of their commercials, they'll say, hey, let us send you a copy of the King James version of the Bible. So that is one of their standard works. But equally inspired is the Book of Mormon, another testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the story of Jesus appearing uh, here in North America um, to um, uh, the offspring of, of the Israelites who came over here and uh, the establishment of different peoples and there was warfare and all sorts of things like that. So it's a continuing story, they would say, of the works of Jesus um, in more recent times. And then there is uh, Doctrine and Covenants, which as I mentioned is a very interesting look at specific revelations that Joseph Smith and others claim to receive directly from God. And a lot of that establishes what their doctrines, what their beliefs and practices are. And then Pearl of Great Price, which has uh, a number of different stories and books contained within it. So those are the four standard works. But in addition to that, if you'll go to the next slide, 
Mormons believe that the LDS president serves as the living prophet, seer, and revelator. In other words, the written revelation of God is open-ended. Uh, they have the four standard works, but the president of the LDS church can receive new revelation from God and that gets added to their canon of scripture. So they have a ever-expanding, um, growing, written canon of scripture. Okay, so that's kind of a quick overview of the history of the LDS church and kind of some of their basic beliefs. What I want to do now, starting with the next slide, is to look at three primary areas of belief for Mormons. We're going to look at what they believe about Jesus, what they believe about the gospel, and what they believe about the afterlife. So first of all, when we look at Jesus, one of their key beliefs is that Jesus is eternal. And we would agree with that. Jesus is uncreated. All right? But the LDS Church teaches that you and I are also eternal. In other words, all of us have always existed. And we began, as we'll see a little bit later, in the first of four stages of eternal progression as eternally existing intelligences. That is, a, we have a conscious being that doesn't have a spirit body or doesn't have a, a physical body, but nevertheless it is a conscious being. So all of us, like Jesus, have the same starting point. Actually, no starting point. We've always been here. We're eternal. So in that sense, Jesus is really no different from us. All right, which goes to the next slide. Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. You say, well, how can that be? Well, all of us began as eternally existing intelligences. But what makes Jesus unique in LDS teaching is that Jesus is the very first being to be born into the spirit world via sexual relations between Elohim, who's the god of this world, and one of his goddess wives. So Elohim, who is the god of this world, and they would call him Heavenly Father, and they would say he's the only god with which we have to do. They would say, we worship one god just like you. We worship Elohim. Uh, he's the only god with which we have to do. Uh, however, they have to acknowledge there are millions of gods who rule over millions of universes elsewhere. But they say, we're, we're only concerned with Elohim, the god of this world. So Elohim has sexual relations with his goddess wives. He has a body of flesh and bone. And so as he has sexual relations with his goddess wives, he brings those eternally existing intelligences into the pre-mortal spirit world. So Jesus is unique in that he is the very first one brought into the spirit world. The second being brought into the spirit world is Lucifer. And so Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, and you and I also would be the spirit brother of Lucifer. Now, Lucifer and Jesus both brought uh, plans of salvation to Elohim. How are we going to redeem human beings when human beings populate the earth? Uh, Jesus had a plan and Lucifer had a plan 
Lucifer's plan was rejected. He got angry and rebelled and took uh, fallen angels with him. And so Satan and demons will never be able to take on human bodies and they will be cast into outer darkness one day. But Jesus' plan was accepted and Jesus learned in the spirit realm and Jesus attained deity in the spirit realm before coming to earth. Okay, so the next slide says what we just covered, that he attained deity in pre-mortal life. Jesus was not perfect in the spirit realm, but he became perfect in the spirit realm. And in becoming perfect, he was not only was a spirit being, but he became a God. All right, next slide, please. All right, in his earthly life, death, and resurrection, Jesus secured salvation for mankind. And as we'll see in a few minutes, uh, the definition of salvation is significantly different from what we understand the Bible to teach. But Mormons would say Jesus is our savior. Uh, he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose physically from the dead, and that is all perfectly consistent with scripture, and they would say to attain salvation for us. We're going, amen, that's right. Well, what we'll see in a minute is they don't mean the same thing by salvation. Okay, next slide. Now we're going to look at the gospel. We've looked a little bit at Jesus and the LDS concept of Jesus. Now in the Mormon understanding of the gospel, uh, there are two types of salvation. Uh, the first type of salvation is called general salvation. General salvation basically means resurrection. Okay, they believe that when Adam fell, Adam fell forward. Adam's fall was a good and necessary thing. That uh, God gave Adam two conflicting rules. One was to be obedient to God and the other was to multiply and to replenish the earth. And he said, well, I can't, I can't do both of those. Uh, I can't be obedient and do both of those. And so uh, he had to uh, disobey God um, and in so doing become a mortal. And by coming a mortal, then he could have sexual relations and he could um, multiply or populate the earth. So Mormons actually believe the fall of Adam was a necessary thing, a good thing, because it brought man from the spirit realm into the mortal realm. But the problem with the mortal realm then is that we die. Because of his sin and rebellion, we die. So Jesus had to come and make it possible for us to live again. So by Jesus leaving the spirit realm and coming to earth and living a perfect life and dying on the cross and being buried and rising from the dead, he accomplished resurrection for us. So that's general salvation. And pretty much everybody is going to receive general salvation. Now Satan and his demons will not 
they won't be able to take on a mortal body, so they're going to go on Judgment Day. They're going to they're going to bypass all that and go into outer darkness. And there are some really, really, really bad people like mass murderers and people who leave the Mormon church who will not be resurrected one day. They'll go into outer darkness, but pretty much everybody else will. So that's general salvation. When Mormons tell you we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for salvation, it sounds great, but it's not biblical. It simply means you're going to be resurrected. Okay, you're going to be resurrected. What happens then? Let's go to the next slide. What's required now is individual salvation. Individual salvation. And that is totally works-based. Totally works-based. And how you live your life depends on or or, uh, determines where you will spend eternity. You're going to spend eternity either in the telestial kingdom, which is the lowest kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, which is the next best, or for Mormons only, the celestial kingdom. And the goal is going to be to get to the highest level of the celestial kingdom where you will achieve a divinity or godhood. Okay, next slide. Yeah, the goal of individual salvation is exaltation. That's their term for it, exaltation or godhood. Next slide, please. And exaltation is only attained through the LDS church, and it requires that you be baptized, that you be married and sealed in in a Mormon temple, that you do what are so-called temple works, and that's a a wide variety of of very stringent works in the temple, including being baptized on behalf of the dead so that those who did not receive the message of Joseph Smith have an opportunity to receive the message of Joseph Smith. Uh, It includes keeping the word of wisdom. The word of wisdom is a pretty strict moral code and behavioral code. It means tithing. It means attending weekly meetings and much more. Uh, It is a very rigorous set of rules and regulations if you want to attain uh, exaltation. And I've read uh, from some Mormon sources that particularly a lot of young people there are going, that's just too much. We can't do it. And so the, the response to that is, well, you are saved by grace after you have done all you can do. So when you, you've got to do everything you can do, and when you've gone as far as you can go, then God, by his grace, will pick you up and take you the rest of the way. All right, next slide, please. So now we're going to talk about the afterlife. Remember, we have, we have the general salvation, which is resurrection, and individual salvation, which has the goal of becoming divine ourselves. So now what happens? Uh, in the afterlife. Well, first of all, as we mentioned before, all people, according to LDS teaching, are eternal. Uh, All people, as well as all gods, have always existed. And you start as an eternally existing intelligence, and then uh, you move through um, the four stages 
of eternal progression, and we'll look at those in just a minute. Next slide, please. The LDS Church would tell you that you are a God in embryo. And one of the most famous statements from an LDS leader comes from uh, the fifth LDS president, Orson Pratt. And Orson Pratt summarized, I think, LDS beliefs in this one phrase. He said, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Elohim, the God of this world, was just a man like you and me. But he attained Godhood and he was awarded this world to rule over and given goddess wives so that he could have sexual relations and bring people out of that in ex eternally existing intelligence into the spirit realm and move them forward. Now, next slide, and we'll see what the four stages are. Mm -hmm. uh, as man is, uh, Orson, O-R-S-O-N, Pratt, P-R-A-T-T, and he was the fifth president of the LDS Church. Okay, there are four stages in eternal progression. You begin as an eternally existing intelligence, then you are born into the spirit world, the pre-mortal spirit world, then you take on mortal probation, in other words, you take on a spirit body or a physical body. And that's one of the reasons Mormons really stress family and they stress having a big family. You are creating uh, human bodies for people in the spirit realm to come and inhabit. Uh, and that's because you want to go to the fourth stage and that is in the resurrection, then you will live forever in one of three different heavens. Okay, next slide, please. All right, there are three kingdoms for everlasting life. There is the telestial kingdom, the telestial, T-E-L-E-S-T-I-A-L kingdom, and that's the lowest level. People who are generally non-religious, wicked people, but not bad enough to go to outer darkness, they will inhabit the telestial kingdom. And even so, it's not a really bad place. The second kingdom is the terrestrial, terrestrial kingdom. Uh, if you are a maybe not such a good Mormon um, or you are a really good Southern Baptist, uh, you'll go to the terrestrial kingdom. That's a better place to spend eternity, but the goal of all Mormons, and it is a place where only Mormons inhabit, is the celestial kingdom. And there are three levels within the celestial kingdom. The highest level of the celestial kingdom is exaltation or godhood. Uh, Mormon males who attain that and become gods at the resurrection will be able to call out a secret name that only their wives will be able to hear and it will call their wives up from the dead, and their wives and their families will be able to spend eternity for them. That's one of the reasons that 
Mormon marriages are sealed for time and eternity in Mormon temples. The idea is you will live with your wife and your family uh, forever, and your wife can become a goddess wife, um, and, uh, and if you become like Elohim, you will have your own universe, your own planet to rule over, and it goes on and on and on and on. Elohim is just one of millions of examples of how this works. And the way the system works here in our world is just one of millions of ways it works in other places throughout the universe. Okay? I'm going to stop here and leave us about 10 or 15 minutes for questions and comments. Okay? What questions or comments do you have? He, uh, he achieved Elohim, uh, the question is who, how did Elohim become a god or, or get to rule over this world? He earned it uh, by going through those four stages of eternal progression. And because he attained exaltation or godhood, the council of the gods um, created and awarded him this planet. Yeah, the question is, if Elohim wasn't the first, who was, who was the first since they all began that way? I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't know that I've seen a good answer to that question uh, in uh, LDS literature. You know, how, if you're all eternally existing intelligences, uh, who gets you into the spirit world, who then gets you into the mortal world, who then allows you to be exalted? That's a very good question, and I'm not sure they have a good answer to that. Yes. Yeah, very good point. Sometimes Mormons will point out the passage where Jesus tells the religious leaders, you know, isn't it written, ye are gods? And that, see, Jesus is acknowledging that these people are gods or they're gods before them. They can be gods and there'll be gods after them. And to me, the, the best answer to that is simply to read that in its context. Uh, Jesus is quoting from an Old Testament passage where um, the leaders of the uh, ancient Israelites uh, are referred to as Elohims or gods. That term Elohim is a plural term. It most often refers to, the God, to our God, the one true and living God, and it also hints at his triunity. But, uh, but sometimes that term Elohim refers to angels and sometimes it refers to human beings. And in the context of the Old Testament, um, the idea that they're gods means that the Lord is placing them with God-given authority among the people of Israel. And so when Jesus quotes that to the scribes and Pharisees, he is simply saying, the Lord has given you as religious leaders authority over the Israelites. And he didn't mean anything more than that. And if you go on and read that in its context, it's really ludicrous to assume that Jesus was referring to people actually becoming gods the way that Elohim is a god. Yes? Yeah, I can't think of what the reference is. We can probably find that. 
in the in the break and give that to you. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, the reference to uh, Paul, I think it's in Second sec- Corinthians 12, I think, where I think, uh, where he says he was uh, caught up into the third heaven and he heard things that were too marvelous to repeat and so on and so forth. Well, when the Bible talks, uses the word heaven, you have to consider the context of heaven because there are really three different ways that heaven is used in scripture. One way is to refer to the sky, the atmospheric heaven. The Bible talks about the rain falling from heaven, um, and it talks about the birds flying through the heavens and the clouds floating through the heavens. Well, obviously, that's a reference to the atmosphere or the sky or the firmament around us. But then the second would be what we might call the stellar heavens or outer space. It talks about when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you consider him? That's obviously a reference to outer space or the stellar heavens. But then there are references to heaven as the throne of God. It is where God uh, is, where he rules and reigns from. It's his seat of authority, if you will. And so when Paul says he was caught up into the third heaven, I believe he was taken up into Uh, the presence of God, the throne room of heaven, much as the Apostle John describes it. So again, for somebody to talk about a third heaven and say, well, see, there's three of them, is really either a misunderstanding or a deliberate misuse of Scripture. Yes, sir. I'll get you next. Which, uh, I'm sorry, which five are you referring to? They, they would say it comes from all of their authoritative scriptures, not only from the King James, but it would come from the Book of Mormon, Pearl and Great Price and Doctrine and Covenant, because all of that is equally authoritative. Um, uh, but when, you talk, when they talk about like the three levels of heaven, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, uh, you know, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on the resurrection, He's talking about the difference between our current body and our resurrected body, and and he's comparing it to different kinds of flesh of different animals and so on. And then he talks about there are bodies terrestrial and there are bodies celestial, talking about things that are earthly and things that are heavenly. And it's interesting in the Joseph Smith translation and in, uh, I think it's in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, it actually says there are bodies telestial, terrestrial, and celestial. So Joseph Smith just corrected the King James and put those three different types of heaven in there. And so, but it is a good question if, if a Mormon shares with you a particular view that seems unscriptural, is to ask them where they got that from specifically. Because they may have pulled it from scripture, uh, they may have pulled it from Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, or they may have heard it from... Uh, one of the Mormon presidents. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Uh, they might say not. Yes, the issue of polygamy is one that uh, has largely divided uh, Mormonism into sects. Um, there are some uh, sects today that maintain uh, polygamy. And in fact, one of, their, uh, one of their leaders, I think, is in jail for. Uh, 
child abuse or, or pedophilia uh, because he was a sect of Mormonism. Joseph Smith, pretty late in his life, uh, claimed he got a revelation from God that God wanted him to have more than one wife. Now his wife was never happy about that. Um, and, uh, and she did not like that, but then he had to have a kind of a come to Jesus meeting with her and say, look, God is speaking to me and this is what God said, and so you better accept it. And so he ended up having a number of wives. I forget exactly how many there were, and he taught that that was, that was something God had given, you know, given to us as a late revelation. Now, um, Brigham Young took that belief in practice with Mormons out to Utah, uh, but when Utah wanted to attain uh, statehood, I think it was 1890, something like that, uh, a revelation, uh, well, the government was not going to let them have statehood. It was mostly Mormons in Utah, and they were practicing polygamy, which was against the law. And so they kind of had a, an alternative. Uh, you can either not have statehood and practice polygamy, uh, or you can abandon polygamy and become a state. And so the Mormon president at that time, I can't remember who it was, uh, got a revelation from God uh, that you should only have one <laughs> wife. So polygamy um, went away, and it's not an official teaching, I don't believe today, of the church, but there are sects that still practice that and believe that the Mormon church in Utah is really a, uh, a corrupt church because they've abandoned the core teachings of Joseph Smith. Yeah, the, the question of tactics, how to talk to Mormons, um, I think it kind of depends really on where, where they may be coming from. They, they may be trying to get you to read the Book of Mormon and to just read the Book of Mormon and see if you will not have that burning in your bosom that confirms that the Book of Mormon you know, is real and true. So, I mean, if that's kind of their focus, um, they say, sure, I'd be happy to take that and happy to read that. Um, however, having a feeling or having an emotional experience does not establish truth. And so I'm going to compare it to the Word of God and see if the Book of Mormon lines up with it. Um, if their approach to you is one that has more to do with Joseph Smith, um, then I think in a, in a respectful way you can say, do you believe a true prophet uh, when he speaks for God is always correct, always tells the truth? And they should answer, yes. And you could point out a number of false prophecies that Joseph Smith made. One of them right here in Missouri is that before Joseph Smith died, um, the, uh, there would be a temple uh, built in uh, Independence, and that would sort of be the, the temple and place where Jesus would return and all that. Well, that was never done. He made a number of other false prophecies that you can, you can document and share with them and just say, these are well-documented prophecies of Joseph Smith that didn't come to pass. Is Joseph Smith a true prophet or not? Um, I'm, I always would be a little careful, and this is particularly true with Muslims, way more with Muslims than others, but to attack their leaders or their founders, sometimes it'll just, it'll just close them up. They don't want to talk anymore after that because they have high respect 
and high regard for them. So you kind of have to sort of crumble the foundations under them in a respectful way. That's right. The fact that Mormon doctrines have shifted and changed over the years presents problems for Mormon scholars today. They have difficulty explaining some of those things. And you say, well, was Joseph Smith mistaken? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So that's, and, and that might be a good inroad to say, you know, if your doctrine is so fluid and so changing, how do you really know what's true and what's right? Uh, isn't, it, isn't it better to go with what God has already revealed and finalized in his word and is unchanging because it reflects the unchanging nature and character of God? Okay. Let's do one more and then we'll break. Yes, sir. Yeah, we will, we will talk about that when we come back after the break, to Jehovah's Witnesses. I brought one version with me of the New World Translation. I re, they have updated, in 2013, they revised the New World Translation, and I, I bought a study Bible uh, that has all kinds of notes and explanations, and it was just too big to bring. It's heavier than a brick. Uh, it's real big. But it, it has revisions and changes in it as, as well. So, All right, well, let's uh, take a break. It's about 10.30, and what, come back at 11?